The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for little dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Haya, the only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 61, released January 22nd, 2015, starts now. <laughs> Hello, fellow martial arts maniacs. Great to have you back in the sumptuously appointed Haya Studios just down the hall and to the left of the Champagne Lounge. All right. We have a great show for you today. We have an interview with Art Davey, creator of the original UFC back in the early 90s and author of the new book on that very subject called Is That Legal? <laughs> Good question. This cat was old school and great fun to talk to, so uh, I believe you people are going to enjoy the hell out of this one. Next up, we will have your Marshall Brain segment from Jeff Westfall. This one's entitled, tongue-twistingly, Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock. That's the Spock, not the Shocker. Uh, <laughs> Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard Spock is actually very relevant uh, to the subject of our interview today. So don't let the name throw you. Make sure you listen through. And lastly, a somewhat retooled media mop-up wherein I lose my temper just a bit. <laughs> if, uh, for instance, you're listening in the car with the kids, just be forewarned. That's where I hid all the F-bombs in this episode. Well, I won't keep you from the episode any longer. Uh, I'll check back in at the end with the usual business. But before I go, uh, slip on out into the champagne lounge, I did want to, you know, throw out a little uh, special Hi-ya. quote for you guys. <laughs> it gets the Hi Ya Award for this episode. Hi-ya. There it goes. <clears throat> Conor McGregor. I suppose you guys saw that fight, most of you. Uh, pretty exciting. Uh, this guy's a character, a real character. And, uh, in his post fight interview at some point, I think he had what I'm going to call the Hi-ya. quote for this episode. It was something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing here. So, you know, it's just another head in the bag. Take it back. Put it on the boss's desk. <laughs> All right. That's enough of my bad impersonations. Uh, but. I just thought that was classic. Anyway, folks, on with the show, this is it. Don't you go to Goa. I believe I'm gonna shut down the chakra, shift Shiva off of my shell. I take down my tie-dyes, my Tibetan bells. I cool down my karma with a, a kind of OPT. Ain't no call for castaneda in my frontline library. There's one thing I know, load above. I ain't gonna go. I ain't gonna go. I ain't gonna go. Now. 
All right, folks, we're back, and we are delighted to have Mr. Art Davey in the virtual studio for this episode. He's a successful businessman, I'll edit that out, (laughs) that is probably best known to our audience as the creator and co-producer of the OG 1993 Ultimate Fighting Championships and for his involvement in bringing K-1 from Japan to America. Um, He's also got a new book, Is This Legal?, chronicling those early UFC days. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Well, Dave, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I may be known primarily and solely for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Uh, you know, you get a chance to swing the bat, and sometimes you hit a home run. And quite frankly, the UFC and mixed martial arts really hit the home run. Absolutely. You know, if you could only pick one thing to be known for, that's a pretty big one. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of times luck is a factor. You know, I was in the right place at the right time. I had the right idea and the right business plan. If I had come along maybe five years earlier, perhaps even at a period later, I'm not sure it would have done as well. Sometimes it's serendipitous to be um, in the right place where the winds are blowing favorably and the politicians haven't come out of the woodwork with their hatchets. Absolutely. And there's a ton of stuff I want to ask you about that. But as is our custom over here, before we get into all the UFC business, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. What got you? You must be must have been interested in martial arts before this. So how how did you come to martial arts and what got you interested and what put the idea for something like this in your head? Well, you know, I was uh, raised in, in New York City. And if you were Italian, Irish, Jewish, uh, in New York City when I was growing up, invariably you were going to be exposed to amateur boxing. Uh, a lot of my relatives, my uncles, my father had boxed. So I became involved in Catholic youth organization boxing as a, as a, as a teen. And, um, uh, you know, that was my early introduction to, uh, you know, quote, the martial arts was, was with boxing with gloves. On the other hand, I tell the story in the book, uh, in that first chapter, uh, the very beginning, of my book, Is This Legal? I had a friend show up on the beach one day, and he brought along a wrestler with him. And we got talking, and the wrestler said, yeah, I hear you've been uh, doing a little boxing training. Before you know it, we were sparring on the beach, and before you could say uh, Jack Daniels, I was on my back on the sand, and this guy was on top of me. He was a little bit bigger, but not much. And before you know it, I'm saying uncle. So early on, I got an exposure uh, as a striker to what a grappler could do, and I never forgot it. Now, years later, I had enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, in 1966, went to Vietnam in 69, and a couple of my buddies over there, we used to always talk about, you know, could Bruce Lee have beaten Muhammad Ali? You know, what would happen if Chuck Norris had met, you know, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson in the ring? Oh, yeah. So that those, was a constant, those... you know, that, that, that was one of those great sports questions, right, there. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we also go over to see the ROK Marines workout. Before I had gone over to Vietnam, I had taken a year's Taekwondo training with June Rhee in Washington, D.C. So I knew just enough martial arts to, uh, to be ignorant. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, I never forgot uh, that my friend Jimmy from Chicago had gone and taken an R&R in Thailand and he came back with stories of going to a Bangkok nightclub and seeing a Muay Thai fighter facing an Indian wrestler. And uh, we were fascinated by his tale of how that bout went. So all of these things had been, in a sense, imprinted in my head 
Years later, I'm working in the advertising agency business, and my boss has a client that imports beer from Mexico, Carta Blanca, Tecate, uh, Bohemia beer. Oh, you're making and, me thirsty. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, you know, that, that audience was, you know, was young for, for that type of product. And at one point, the, the client said to my boss, we need some new ideas. You've got to come in with some fresh thinking. So my boss brought me to, the, to a meeting, and he said, Art's got a lot of great ideas. Art, talk to this guy. Well, we wound up chatting, and he said, look, I'm going to give you guys 90 days to come back to me with something really hot. Well, one of the ideas that I developed for my boss to present to his client was the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Now, at the time, Dave, I was calling it the world's best fighter. That was my working title. And I had put together a whole package. I had interviewed kickboxing promoters uh, uh, in Denver, Karen Turner, Joe Koffenberg, T-shirt Joe in L.A., and uh, I was trying to find who was doing anything remotely similar to this world's best fighter concept. And what it was was, I'm thinking of a tournament, and I'm thinking about guys from judo and karate and boxing and taekwondo, gung fu. I want it all. But, you know, we presented it to the client, Dave, and they shook their head and said, well, it's marvelous, but, you know, it's, it's bigger than, you know, than we were anticipating. We'd have to fund an entire sport. And quite frankly, the violence may bring an awful lot of blue noses and Puritans out of the woodwork. Oh, yeah. So, they, so you know, they, they passed on it. But I see this idea, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, wait a minute. This thing has to go somewhere. So I went to my boss at one point and said, look, I, I'm going to leave the agency. I'm, gonna, I'm giving you 30 days' notice. I'd like to take that concept with me. He said, yeah. I, he said, I got no problem with that. He said, you know, you developed it and they passed. So I left the agency. And I went then and began to do even more research. And before you know it, I had read this article in the 1989 issue of Penthouse Magazine about the Gracie family in mm -hmm. Torrance, California. And interestingly enough, Dave, I got my, uh, my, my job recruiter had got me a new advertising agency gig. And guess where it's at? Torrance, California. <laughs> so I'm literally a few blocks away from the Gracie Academy. Before you know it, there I am in August of 1990. I'm knocking on their door, and I want to meet them. And it took me a while to finally hook up with Horion. But what I found was that the, those Brazilians, going all the way back to uh, before World War II, were competing in Brazil uh, in what they call Vale Tudo. Anything goes. Right. And it was very similar but, you know, Valetudo didn't have any formal set of rules. It never got a commission. It never uh, codified what it was doing. And it really referred almost to something that was carnival-oriented. You know, a guy would come into town, and he'd challenge a few people, and they'd, they'd get a little publicity for it. Some cases, these things actually made it to TV. But uh, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu people were really on the forefront of it. And I began then to realize that the real uh, father of this whole idea was Pancration, which had been installed into the Greek Olympics back in 648 B.C. And it was, it was what I was talking about, Dave. It was, you know, no biting, no eye gouging, but everything went. You could do it all. You could grapple, you could throw, you could punch, you could kick. So uh, that's really the genesis of how this happened. That's really how Art Davy got involved in this. I, I, I lost a fight, I lost a, a brawl, a, 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 you know, a, a sparring match on the beach back, in the, <laughs> uh, back in, in the 60s, and I got turned on to the idea when I was in the service, and before you know it, working for an ad agency, I had come up with the basic concept, which morphed from the world's best fighter 
to my next working title, Dave, which was the War of the Worlds. <laughs> of course, you know that was, you know that was that was a, uh, an H.G. Wells, a, a, you know, book that became a movie. Yeah, it's out of copyright. Uh, you could have used it. I yeah. <laughs> so you know, I, I knew I, I really couldn't go too far, Dave, with that name. But right. That allowed me to start calling on people in TV. I went to HBO. I went to Lou DiBella, the boxing guy at HBO. I went to Jay Larkin over at Showtime. And all of those guys laughed at me. They said, look, boxing's the king. What you're talking about, you know, it's better in the movies. You know, the karate kid, the kung kickboxer, best Blood of the sport, best. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. Blood sport, exactly. They laughed at me. They said, you know, boxing's the real deal. What you're talking about here is kitty poop. This is not going anywhere. <laughs> but, I, but I actually got lucky. In all my calls and research, I found a pay-per-view company that had been doing a lot of concerts and comedy on pay-per-view, but they had no franchise. Uh, this was Semaphore Entertainment Group, and I talk about them in my book, Is This Legal? They are part of Chapter Eight, uh, Chapter 7 called the New York Bankies because they had money. They were hooked <laughs> up with... They, they had real money. They, they were hooked up with Bertelsmann's Music Group, BMG in Europe, and yep. they were funding it their concerts, but you know, how many times a year could you bring Andrew Dice Clay to pay-per-view? You could put him on once. Right, right. You know, it, it wasn't a franchise. So I walk in the door, Dave, and I've got this War of the Worlds concept, and uh, I was lucky that I met their their chief acquisitions executive, a guy who'd helped build the, the uh, Catch a Rising Star comedy clubs, kind of a frustrated comedian himself, bright though, educated at Berkeley, you know, in California. His name was Campbell McLaren, and he got it right away. I'm telling you, I faxed him something. Before you know it, he's sending me a, a ticket to come to New York, and I'm presenting this idea. And they were, they were waiting for something that could become a franchise. And that's how we went into business. Six months later, on November 12, 1993, we produced the first event, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And that, that's amazing. And again, you're you're right. There was some serendipity involved, but you were you were really bringing back, you know, an idea that had been around for centuries, but had somehow kind of fallen off and was now only the purview of the movies, you know. And yes, and yes. it seems like when they would try to mix, you know, a boxer and a martial artist or something, the rules got so complicated that nobody was ever satisfied with what happened. And bringing it back to that original model was a stroke of genius, I think. Well, you know what was interesting, Dave, too, and you got your finger on something right there, because I did harken back to pancreation, but what I found was that every attempt in the modern era, you know, um, uh, to, to create a, a mixed match event, um, uh, Antonio Inoki, the wrestler versus Muhammad Ali in Tokyo in 76, Gene mm -hmm. uh, LaBelle, Judo Gene versus Milo Savage in, in 62, uh, what happened was every time you got two martial artists together, there was, two, there was two issues that would screw up the deal. Number one was, oh, who's gonna, who, 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 who gets what money? What do I get? What do you get? You know, they'd right. argue about that. And that was the problem with even with, with the Gracie Challenge. They had, been, they had posted in that article uh, back in Playboy in 89, you know, this Gracie Challenge. But nobody ever accepted the Gracie Challenge because nobody had 100000 and, uh, you know, the, uh, nobody could agree to that. The second problem was they'd argue about the rules. Well, uh, can I wear a gi? Can you wear gloves? Can we do this in the ring? Can we do this on a mat? And when you had two martial artists arguing about the rules, it's like two pit bulls uh, arguing how to divide a steak. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so it never worked. So nope. what I had, you know, Dave, what I had, here's the key to the, to the transition from world's best fighter to war of the world to the ultimate fighting championship. Here's the two ideas that I had were unique, and I pushed them like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a bulldog. The one was, it has to be a tournament. We're going to bring in, originally I was thinking of 16, and we actually did UFC 2 as a 16-man, which was too much. I was thinking of, you know, a tournament where we would bring in a whole bunch of different guys, single elimination. They do it in golf and tennis, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you lose, you're out. You keep moving forward until at the end you've got two guys left. So I saw it as a tournament, number one. Number two, it was pay-per-view. All of these guys who had been talking about trying to do something over the years, oh, let's do a video, we'll run down a blockbuster, you know, one of the brick-and-mortar video stores in those days. Right. We'll, 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 you know, we'll get it in there. That wasn't the way to go. I knew that pay-per-view was wrestling, the WWE, and boxing. That's where we needed to be. Also, it was adult entertainment on pay-per-view. If this thing was going to be rough and scaring a lot of people, this is where it belonged. So those are my two original ideas. And Semaphore got it in New York, my TV partners, they, uh, we, we finally signed a deal, and I talk about that in the book, we didn't sign the deal till 70 minutes before the show. Wow. So they had everything in place, but they were still being cagey about, are we going to agree to this deal? Well, you know, in fact, I talk about it in the book, uh, you know, uh, there are no rules, chapter 10. We get down there at the end, and it's about, you know, Horian and I and our company, while promotions had put up the purse, for the first event, and they paid for production and marketing, and that's a lot of money. Yeah. But I said to them, right before the event, I said, tell you what, this show is about talent, and it's not, I'm not the talent, the fighters are the talent, and you guys got to pay for the talent. I've already got you to pay for the, some of the appearance fees for, like, the boxer. We had to pay an appearance fee to get Art Jimmons in the boxer. He was rated number 10th in the world, right. and I had to pay an appearance fee to get big old Taylor Tooley, who's now a star on Hawaii Five-0 as my sumo wrestler. And I said to them, you got to pay the, the purse. So that's what we were still arguing about, Dave, 70 minutes before the first show. And they couldn't have run the pay-per-view until I signed that deal. So I finally got them to agree, starting in UFC 2, Semaphore Entertainment not only pays marketing and production, you pay the purse. So they held out, but they finally bit, which is awesome. Exactly. Because, yeah. <laughs> now, now, you know, Dave, was interesting. The title of the book, Is This Legal? I, I owe it all to Chuck Norris. At one point, we went out to Chuck's house. Horian had done some seminars. Horian Gracie had done some seminars with Chuck. And, you know, Chuck had started to get interesting and interested in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Chuck was a very progressive guy when it came to the martial arts, much more so than a Steven Seagal or, a, uh, you know, a Jean-Claude Van Damme. He had studied a bit with the Gracies. He had studied with the Machados. And um, there had been a little dispute between he and Horian about money on a seminar deal but we went out to his house and asked him if he would be, you know, like a color commentator. Would he even just come in and sit ringside? You know, his credibility yeah. there. And, you know, here's the deal, Dave. Everything we said to him about this new idea, which was coming at the pay-per-view in literally two or three months from then, he would say, well, wait a minute. Is this legal? <laughs> and we would say, yes. <laughs> he would say, wait a minute. Is the National Guard going to show up? Well, how's the governor going to react? I said, no, no, it's legal. And he would, he would say, wait a minute. Are you guys sure this is legal? <laughs> so that's where the title of the book came from. Now, I tell the story uh, that in, in the epilogue of the book that years later, I, I had a reason to go and present a TV show to Chuck at his house. And it was a, a, you know, a scripted show about a, a bronc rider who... You know, a born-again Christian who becomes uh, interested in becoming a bounty hunter because his brother was a cop got killed in L.A. 
Huh. And we're at Chuck's house. Yeah, we're at Chuck's house, and the writers are there, and there's lawyers and agents. And, and at one point, somebody, uh, there was a lull in the conversation, and somebody mentioned the UFC. Chuck was standing over by the fireplace. He turned to the room, and he kind of raised his hand like he wants to make say something. Everybody got quiet. And he turned to the room, and he said, you know something, all right, Davey? He said, I was wrong about the UFC 11 years ago. And I thought, that is very classy. He didn't have to say that. It was, it was a grand gesture. And I say that in the epilogue that, you know, Chuck showed me that he was a real gentleman, uh, a real pro, and a real good guy. But, yeah. um, you know, early on, he didn't want to come. And, you know, later, everybody who had objected to the UFC was nervous about it, you know, realized that this was going to become a big deal. Well, you actually did get some good color commentary and, and ringside stuff for that first one. Bill Superfoot Wallace and Kathy Long, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. And you know, was interesting. that was actually my idea. They had been arguing, uh, carrying on a debate in the martial arts magazines of whether or not women should be in kickboxing. And, you know, Kathy was for it, and Bill was kind of old school and was against it. Yeah. I thought there'd be some great chemistry there. Also, Semaphore pulled a rabbit out of the hat, and they got Jim Brown, mm. the great... Number 32, great nine seasons with the Cleveland Browns, one of the whole great Hall of Fame fullbacks of all time. He came in and uh, also did the color commentary. So we were fortunate. We had a pretty good lineup. Uh, Rich Goins, uh, the, uh, the V-man in Denver who had once became famous for sitting on top of the billboard when the, when the, the Broncos were losing and he wouldn't get off it until they began to win. He was our... <laughs> He was our announcer. Uh, you know, we had Elio Vigio and Jose Barreto uh, from Brazil, who were very well known in the Valley Tudor Circus, came in as our referees. We had Art Jimerson, who was ranked at that point 10th in the world as an, uh, in, with the IBC yeah. uh, as a cruiserweight. And he was due in six weeks after the fight, Tommy Hitman Hearns. Um, we had Zane Fraser, who was the WKF Super Heavyweight Kickboxing Champ. Kevin Rozier, who had held a number of kickboxing titles in American-style kickboxing. Uh, Pat Smith, who'd won the Sabaki Challenge there in Denver, uh, and was training with Bobby Lewis as a boxer down in Vegas. Uh, we had uh, uh, Ken Shamrock, who had just completed uh, one of his first bouts with Pancrase in Japan, flew in that week. Great shoot fighter, who later became you know, the Hall of Famer that he is. And we had Horian's younger brother, Hoist, as the entry, uh, the entrance for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I thought it was going to be Hickson, but and I talk about that in the book that there's almost a Shakespearean drama between that family as to who was finally going to represent, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and it turned out to be the baby, uh, Hoist, who later on, of course, became a great Hall of Famer and is now in the new uh, Scorpion Four movie. Yeah, and Scorpion King. And that was sort of a conscious choice by the patriarch to really drive the point home about their martial art, right? Well, you know, Horian always said to me, and he was, you know, he was, there was an unspoken rivalry between him and Hickson because Hickson was the best fighter, but Horian was the oldest and he'd led the charge bringing the family to America. And Horian felt, number one, whatever difficulties he had with Hickson, that the, the advantage of having Hoyce as the entrant is that Hoyce was six foot one and 175 pounds soaking wet. He, he looked more like his dad. He wasn't a big, husky, uh, fearsome-looking guy. Hickson was a powerfully built 185-190-pounder. Uh, he looked like a cross between Mike Tyson and Antonio Banderas. <laughs> so yeah. you know, so uh, you know, the, the Horian was right. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, he was threatening. He looked tough, and uh, he was tough. But having Hoist in there certainly uh, helped to get the point across for the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu crowd 
that, you know, with the right skill, a smaller, slender man could hold his own, if not defeat, a bigger, rougher, huskier man. And uh, that's what the, the, you know, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu folks really wanted to get across. In that sense, Oriana and I always were across purposes because I saw the UFC, Dave, as an end in itself. And Horian saw the UFC as a means to an end, a way to get the message across to the larger world that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was the preeminent martial art. Right. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, when the actual competition got started, I mean, what yes. was the reaction, both of, you know, the people involved, the fighters, you guys, uh, and, and the people <laughs> in the room, uh, when you know when when those first teeth flew across the ring and, and right, the blood right. started to flow, how what was going on in there? Because you guys had no idea what to expect, right? Yeah, that that's a great question, and I I, I address it in the book, um, in the chapter eleven, the first UFC. That um, in that chapter we talk about the fact that first of all, all the fighters were nervous. I mean, all week long. These guys knew that they were the X-15 pilots of the martial arts world. We were attempting to do something that really nobody had done. So there was a lot of posturing. There was a lot of uh, nervous uh, apprehension on the various fight teams' parts. There was uh, some, you know, some stare-downs going on in the hotel lobby. Uh, everybody was pretty wired and keyed up for this. And, uh, you know, and I had Gold Jim in. Pete Grimkowski, the great uh, bodybuilding competitor who had bought Gold's Gym, they were in as our sponsor. They had flown up. We're going to be there ringside, cage side in tuxedos, all of their executives. They were nervous and apprehensive as to what was going to go on. Our TV people for Semaphore, uh, Michael Pilot, the producer, uh, Mark Lucas, our director, they had done, you know, Bruce Springsteen concerts, and here they are <laughs> facing what was going to be potential. At one point, uh, Mark Lucas, the director, said to me, all right, is there any possibility that that sumo wrestler could throw a guy outside the octagon? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, wait a minute. He said, we're really not prepared for that. I said, I'm not prepared for anything. I said, the fact of the matter is, I said, we're, we're off into the wild blue yonder. I said, I've got people stationed around the octagon. I said, but Tuli is famous in, in, in Hawaii for ending street fights by picking some guy up and throwing him through a plate glass window. I said, I, so I don't know what's going to happen. So that was the kind of energy, Dave, that was going on before this first before this first event. And of course, you know, I had created the matchups. Later on, we did it with a blind draw at the press conference. But for the first event, the night before the event, I'm, I'm talking about that in the book. I'm talking about that in Chapter Eight: Sharks and Goldfish. Uh, you know how I was going to do the matchups. I was changing them at the last minute. I wound up matching Gerard Bourdieu a tough Dutch kick fighter mm-hmm. who also was the world heavyweight champion, Sabat, a tough guy who was born in Belgium, raised in Holland, uh, a guy who had been an enforcer for a lot of the nightclub owners and the rave promoters in, uh, in Amsterdam, and uh, uh, had fought in Japan. Uh, he'd been through Asia. He's a tough guy. And yeah. he came out of Johan Plas's gym in Amsterdam. Plas, in prison, was connected with the uh, the gangster underground in Amsterdam. When I called him, I was trying to get Ernesto Hoost or Peter Arts from K1, mm-hmm. but I wound up getting, I couldn't afford them. And Johan said to me, you want a real tough guy who's great in a street fight? He said, there's no guy better in Holland he said, than Gerard Gordeau. So I've got him in the first bout, and here he is facing six foot two, 420 pounds. He'd been in the back of Sheeta class, which is way up there. Not Yokozuna, but it's up there. Yeah. And he'd actually, he'd actually been thrown out of sumo, Dave, because 
he was considered a bad boy. There was some story floating around Japan that he had actually taken a reporter and shoved him uh, through a door or shoved him into a glass door. There was some to talk about that they, they kicked him out of sumo professionally. He had to go back to Hawaii because he had been a bad boy. So I've got this guy who'd never been to the United States before, continental United States, never seen snow, you know, right. and here he is. <laughs> And here he is, and all during the week on the radio broadcast, they were interviewing our fighters there locally, and Gordo said, look, uh, you know, if, if they're going to match me up against the sumo wrestler, he said, I'm going to be a bullfighter. He says, I'll, you know, I'll let him make a pass. And he said, I'll clip him as he runs, you know. And this is exactly what happened in that first bout. Yep. Taylor Tooley's tooth shatters. Pieces of it wind up in his hand, wind up in his foot. The rest of it sails out over the, the people from Gold's Jim's heads. By that second bout, Dave, all of the wives from Gold's Gym went back to the limousine and headed back to the hotel. They were finished. They were done. And by the way, that was the last sponsorship that we got from Gold's Gym. They decided it was a little too rough, a little too bloody at that point. So, yes, that, that first bout, you know, I talk about it as the shot that changed the world. It was the shot heard around the world. When, when Gerard Gordeaux kicked and punched Taylor Tooley, the guys back watching the monitor, the fighters back in the dressing area. I later on, because I was I was out by the side of the cage. I was there either there or working with the the, the, the director. Right. I heard that the fighters that there was a lull and people's faces went white, including the the African American guys. People was were shocked at what they saw. They now realize this was truly the real deal. I mean, there was no rules. It was bare knuckle. Yeah. Uh, you know. I also talk about the, um, uh, in Chapter 10, there are no rules. We almost had a brawl at the fighters meeting on Thursday night. Um, there was a big debate about whether or not the knuckles could be wrapped and how far could they be wrapped. And, and uh, Zane Fraser, the kickboxer, and Art Jemison, the boxer, led the charge on that. Taylor Tooley chilled the whole meeting out by standing up at the back of the room, slamming down the release paper on the desk and said, I signed. He said, anybody else who wants to party tomorrow night, I'll see you at the arena. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that stopped the whole BS debate about, about knuckle wraps. Everybody, the room, somebody started applauding, and that was the end of Because there's a picture of me in the book, and you can see that I got my hand on my chin. I've lost control of this meeting. Horian and I are, are operating without a net. Right. We don't know whether there's going to be a brawl because some of the guys were starting to stand up. They were starting to do it. People were getting pissed, quite frankly. And uh, Taylor Tooley solved my problems. I talked to him recently about two, three months ago, and I thanked him again. I said, you know, Taylor, you saved my butt 20 years ago, and I, I still haven't forgotten it. It's a true story. Well, you make a good point that, you know, a lot of people have said early on that, oh, a lot of these fighters, they're, they're not for real. They shouldn't have been in the ring. But from, from the first one, you know, uh, these people all had reputations and, and skills and experience yes. to bring to the table. Yes. So, you know, you know, you know the, other, the other point about that, too, Dave, is that, you know, I, I give a lot of credit. I dedicated the book to the 10 fighters who, you know, the, the eight fighters in the tournament, the two alternates, I dedicated to them because I said, look, these guys put their reputations on the line. Remember, a lot of people turned me down in the beginning. I mean, the Dennis Alexios and the Peter Arts of this world, uh, there were an awful lot of guys who hung up on me or blew me off the phone. So I give a lot of credit to these 10 guys who, in effect, were saying, if I go out there and be embarrassed, I'm willing to take that chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's... Sorry about that. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, 
we all we all know how it turns out, and if you don't, I won't spoil it. The information's in the book. Uh, <laughs> but what was the feeling around there after it was all over? You know, uh, what was coming back to you from the outside world, and what was the reaction of the people who, uh, you know, uh, uh, were in this first big event? You know, that's another great question, Dave. The, the the energy level at the end of the first event, first of all, the fighters uh, knew they had been through something special, really. And the next night, we held at the hotel, we had it all scheduled and prepared, we held a dress ball. We asked everybody to wear their best clothes or tuxedos. Many of them came in formal dress. Uh, Ken Shamrock, Horace Gracie all showed up in tuxedos. So did Kevin Rozier. Um <laughs> Taylor uh, Tooley wore his uh, Polynesian Hawaiian skirt and a, and a T-shirt and a bow tie. And uh, it was that kind of event. But these guys, there was I, I talk about an honor shared is not diminished. That's the epigraph for, for that chapter, the Monster's Ball, chapter 12 in my book. Because those guys, there was a great feeling of camaraderie. And all during the, the 18 events that I was involved in, that continued. Those guys knew that they, you know, there could be a lot of of uh, there could even be some trash talk before, but they had all been through through hell and a war together. So the feeling among the fighters was beautiful to watch. There's a picture of me in the book, uh, leading a conga line at 3 a.m. in the morning. We're still dancing. We're still partying. We're still partying. Taylor Tooley was on that conga line. Some of the Gracie youngsters were in it. Uh, it was wild. It was a wonderful night. Uh, the, among the executives, I remember Campbell McLaren and I at one point looking at each other, putting our hands on each other's shoulders. We had a, a glass of single malt scotch in our right hands, and we looked at each other and we said, this is going to be huge, huge. And by Monday morning, when we started to get the numbers back on pay-per-view, we did almost 90,000 buys. Nice. You know, that was – and the semaphore thought we might get 40. They'd be thrilled if we got 50. They figured we are probably going to get 25,000. We get uh, 89,000 buys, almost 90,000 homes. And this, and this day, by the way, is in an era when there were only 33 million homes in North America wired for pay-per-view. Today, that number in the modern UFC era is over 100 million homes that have the box. So for us to do that 90,000, and we did almost 300,000 by UFC 5, indicates how popular this thing was. Everybody knew that this was something special. We knew it at the event. We knew it. The night of the event, the night, the night after at the party, and by Monday afternoon, we were all jumping up and down, all of us, realizing that we had spawned a huge hit. We knew it was going to be big. Yeah. Well, and nothing makes people feel more alive than, you know, flirting with death and injury. <laughs> Yeah, right. So I'm sure, exactly. Sure, it was a great party, and I was of the generation. Um, you know, I was just coming of age. I was in my early twenties. It was my salad days. You know, poor. So I wasn't watching these on pay per view. I was waiting for the video to drop. But you would hear about it the next day from the people who did see it, or you know, by the second, third yes. one, I would have yes. friends that would we would all chip in to watch these things. Yes. Well, we knew we knew by UFC three in the September of ninety four that, you know, the average number of people in a home watching this is now up to five or six. People were having their buddies come over, they're getting some pizza, some beer, some Cokes, and they're sitting down and enjoying this thing. And uh, we did, um, we did, uh, you know, one in 93, we did uh, three in 94, we did five in 95, five in 96. Uh, you know, we, we began to expand these things right away. Uh, you know, we began to grow these things right off the bat. Um, by 97, we were doing five. By '98, when, when we, by the time we were banned, it went down to three a year. 
Right. And and it didn't go up to ten a year until the until the fourth year that Zufa owned it. You know, they were only doing five in two thousand and four, five in two thousand and three. I think they did seven in two thousand and two, and they bought it in two thousand and one. They only did five. So, you know, we we really enjoyed a great run. I tell the story that you know. Uh, I was driving down um, uh, Sunset Boulevard a few years ago in my convertible, and I see a billboard with Randy Couture up on the billboard. Uh, in the, they're, they're announcing he's going to be in the next UFC. And I had booked Randy in. You know, Randy was my fighter that I had recruited, and, uh, you know, uh, I was real excited about the fact that I had been able to bring him into the UFC. And um, uh, yeah. he was my guy. So people have asked me, well, how did you feel about, you know, when, you know, uh, you know, somebody, you know, the, now somebody else has had this show and so forth. And so I said, you know, uh, in a way, it's a little bit like a divorced father and about watching somebody else raise his son. But you know something? I had a great run. You, you can't get any luckier than I was. And, uh, uh, to be in the place that I was in, and to do what I did, to bring in the UFC 13 guys like Randy Couture, to bring in uh, Olympic gold medalist, uh, uh, you know, that I did, uh, some of the people like uh, Mark Schultz, you know, and uh, Kevin Jackson, you know, it's yeah. a great thrill for me when you think about it. I was very fortunate. I had a great one. Uh, half of the people in the UFC Hall of Fame are people that I booked. Yeah. Out of the 12 fighters in the UFC, six of them are people I booked, you know. So I'm very proud of what I did. I was in the right place at the right time, and I was very fortunate. Very fortunate. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's come to the point now where you know it's the fastest growing sport in the world, but it's also you know it's some it loses a little something for me or for a lot of people when it doesn't have that sort of ragged edge of these are guys just coming out of the woodwork, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. they're experienced, but it's so professionalized now, which I think ultimately is a good thing for everybody. But you know. Yeah. Yes. In all fairness, I give and I give I've given a lot of credit in interviews to Fatidis when they came on board in two thousand and one. It took them several years, and they invested millions and millions of dollars to move this thing forward. They finally got the contract with Fox. They did a great job when they were on Spike. They moved this to the mainstream. Uh, by the way, I was at Mandalay Entertainment in 2003, um, Peter Gruber's company, who produced Rain Man, Flashdance, and Batman. Yeah. And I was pitching a, a, a martial arts reality show, an MMA reality show called Fight Quest, uh, to Spike at the same time that uh, Lorenzo, Dana, and Frank were pitching uh, The Ultimate Fighter. So we all knew that if you got that weekly cable show, Dave, that was the formula that had been pioneered in wrestling. That's what Vince McMahon did in wrestling. You needed the weekly, weekly cable show to build your heroes and villains yep. and then bring them over to pay-per-view. So I give a lot of credit to the Petitas. They hung in there. They invested a lot of money. They didn't quit. And they've taken it to the mainstream. And it is the fastest-growing sport. I get calls, texts, uh, and tweets from people in Norway, Thailand, uh, Singapore, uh, you know, Indianapolis, uh, Brooklyn, New York. I mean, you, you, you name it. It's amateur and pro MMA you know, is everywhere. It's in 49 states. It's in all 10 provinces in Canada. Uh, it's big in the U.K. It's doing pretty good in Germany. Um, you know, it's in China, Japan. There's even MMA now in Thailand, the home of Thai boxing. I mean, this thing has become an international phenomenon. But you know something? It was one of the biggest things on the Olympic program back in the ancient Greek Olympics. By the fourth Olympics, after it was introduced, it was the most popular event. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the purest forms of sports you can have. Two people squared yes. off in a cage. Exactly. No, you know, you can grapple, you can strike. Uh, it's such a primal sport. 
uh, there was a wonderful statue which supposedly was almost seven feet tall and weighed 500 pounds of Polydamus, the great Pancratian athlete. He was the one of the immortals when you think about it. And right. I think about today that, that what we've got is the modern version of Pancratian, and we have the modern versions of Polydamus. Look at John Jones. Look at George St. Pierre. Look at, look at Ronda Rousey today. You, know, you, you see a growth and an evolution of this sport, and it continues. And yeah. imagine what it'll be 10 or 15 or 20 years from today. Yeah, it's it's constantly evolving, and I, I really think it's cool that you see a lot of fighters, you know, going back to you know the traditional martial arts, kind of as they're called, kind of yes. boxed out for a while in the latter period of the UFC as being ridiculous or no good. But I now I talk to people who fight who are training in Wing Chun and do judo and all yes. kinds of other yes. things. They're they're going back and remining that feel, which I think is great. It'll help Absolutely. reinvigorate everything. I- I feel the same way about that, Dave. I think that you know the martial arts will continue to be a resource mine for athletes to go back and uh, and to create a fighting style and a fighting uh, persona. Uh, you know, we've seen the judo for Ronda and what she's been able to do with that. Yep. Uh, you know, it, 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 you know, Bruce Lee was right. Um, you know, to be able to cross train, to be able to keep your mind and eyes open to what can work, to use what is effective for you and to build a fighting style that takes advantage of the other guy's weakness and to make him fight your fight, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Well, you're such an awesome talker. I barely had to ask you any questions, but do you mind if I get a couple of quick ones out before we move on? Of course. Absolutely. Anything you want. Uh, we're uh, just talking about the octagon itself. I read somewhere that uh, John Milius actually came up with, with that format, with that idea. Is that the case? <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, uh, if you go into my book, uh, I really cover how the octagon was developed, and I cover it on, we have a website, isthislegalthebook.com, and I, in fact, there's one post there that deals exactly with the, the history and the evolution of the octagon. Okay. Milius, was a, Milius was a great, uh, John uh, was a great uh, inspiration mentor to me. First of all, he's talking about one of the great uh, maverick directors. He was a contemporary of Spielberg's and, and George Lucas. Oh, yeah. He became he became successful and famous before they did. There's a wonderful documentary about him. His son Ethan is featured in the book, and he was my personal he was my production assistant, my personal PA at the first UFC. And uh, John taught me cigar smoking. When I was met John, I was smoking Jamaicans, and when he got <laughs> done with me, I was a confirmed Cuban guy, a Cuban smoker. He, he told me he learned cigar smoking day from John Houston, the great director. And uh, so Emilius uh, became an inspiration on the Octagon. We, we met at his office at Sony Studios a couple of times. He took us out to Shotzi's uh, Schwarzenegger's restaurant for cigar night. And he was giving us a lot of ideas. Uh, I had a lot of crazy ideas myself. I talk about it in the book. I had a, one, one idea. I had a moat. Another idea. I had a, <laughs> a, a, a circular. You know, a moat would be filled with lemon sharks or piranha. Yeah, there I you go. I thought if we fed the piranha, they'd be as tame as catfish, maybe. Right. Uh, and then we couldn't figure out the logistics of how to fill, you know, go to every different arena and fill this thing with water and, and then empty it. In any event, I even had an electrified copper ring on a circular uh, fighting surface 40 feet across. And then a, a doctor at the Gracie Academy said to me, one of a fellow student, he said, do you understand what happens when somebody with a sweaty chest falls on a copper electrified plate? And he said, can you pronounce the word ventricular fibrillation? <laughs> so, so, that, so that idea got thrown out. But we, well, well, how it came about was this. Oriental and I created a list of things that it either had to have or that we felt, felt were mandatory that it should not be there. 
Horian was adamant about it not being a boxing ring. He felt strongly that the boxing ring encouraged somebody who lands below the, the bottom rope to roll out, stopping the action. We didn't want to do that for a lot of reasons, both to, to affect the flow of the fight and we also for the, for, the, for the audience's enjoyment. Having the fight stop because someone rolled out would be a, a no-no. Right. Um, we, I myself felt that it needed to be at least 30 feet because a boxing ring ran between 20 to 24. Uh, I looked at wrestling mats. I, I felt very strongly about 30 feet. Uh, I felt very strongly about a two-inch pad because I knew we were going to get people dropping, uh, you know, their opponent on their back or neck or shoulders uh, with a suplex, and I wanted something that was padded. Yet I didn't want it padded enough that it would slow the kickers and the punchers down. In right. fact, we made a cut it in half. I made it, it went down, it originally was going to be two, it became an inch and a half, finally became an inch and a quarter, which I think is what it is today. So we supplied that list, and we gave it to Semaphore because their TV people needed to give us some input too. They had to put six cameras around this deal, including a Chapman crane. So Michael Pilot, the director at Semaphore, Mike, Mark Lucas, the, the, uh, the producer, uh, had give us their input on what they needed from a television input. They obviously needed some sort of a rim to allow the cameramen around whatever fighting ring or surface we created to work. And then Michael Pilot, the producer, the line producer, recruited two set directors, Jason Cusson, C-U-S-O-N, and um, uh, uh, Mark, and I can't remember his last name, I'm embarrassed, uh, <laughs> Greg Harrison, excuse me, Greg Harrison and Jason Cousin, these two set designers. I talk about it uh, in my post on isthisleagofthebook.com, and they came up with four different designs. They're on the website. Uh, you'll see the four different designs and with the one we finally went with, which is the modern octagon. Hmm. At one point, they had something that had uh, their torches mounted at four points. But they came up with four different designs based on the list that Horian and I developed and inspired by the original mental suggestions of Milius, uh, eliminating some of my crazy ideas, using the, the TV people's need for uh, a, a, a parapet or a ramp for the cameramen, right. and uh, also uh, sidelines for the for the uh, people who in the uh, in the um, in, in the uh, ringside seats. So all those considerations resulted in what, and I give credit eighty five percent of the octagon to Cussin and Harrison, more Cussin than anyone else, uh, based upon my own experience with working with the two guys, and they created it. Um, Pilot was going to throw it away after the first event because it was a set, and I said. Mike, we're gonna. It's cost twenty eight thousand dollars. Yeah. He said, "Yeah." He said, it's, it's, "You know, it's a big thing, and it came in these boxes." And we later made a version which was more transportable and foldable. But I had rented a, a rental facility, and I turned to Pilot and said, "I've got a rental facility." I said, "Have your grips pack it up." I said, It'll, "We're coming back here next." You know, and we came back in March of ninety four. I said, "We're coming back to Denver." I said, "I've already. I'm already talking to this arena and Mammoth Event Center." So Pilot stored it, and that's how it didn't get thrown out. Awesome. You know, out of all yeah. the ideas you had that that uh, that didn't play, I think the shock ring may still have legs on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was just looking for some way to keep the guys within a boundary, you know, and then you know, electricity sounded appealing to me on some level. So Alligators are hard to get, but shock ring, that could, right. that could still work. You know, yeah, it was it was doable on one level, but uh, you know it was a great time. We were inventing this stuff, Dave, as we went along, and that was the, the the glory of that time was that you know there was no track that we were following, there was no template that we were installing. We were making this stuff up and creating it from the get go, 
And uh, it was a great excitement. Semaphore got excited because they sensed that this was going to be big. And they were right. And, you know, yeah. and that's why. And by the way, there was some early you know, scuttlebutt, you know, about, well, you know, the original promoters saw this only as a spectacle, as a one shot. There was some talk in some of the early years when, when the Zupa people you know, came in and bought the franchise that, you know, the, you know, the, the revisionist history was that us early guys were kind of spectacle guys, one shot guys. But I talk about that in the book. We had a five year deal with Semaphore. And it, I delineate that deal in the book. So you can see that we planned to do five to ten events, uh, you know, per year, and starting with the uh, 94. This was never conceived as a one-shot. Uh, Campbell McLaren and I at Semaphore knew that this thing would have legs, yeah. and that, and it did. And by Monday morning after the show, as I said to you, they, this thing was, uh, it was off the charts. Semaphore, uh, you know, it made sure that the BMG people came to the second show. Of course, the BMG people was funny when they came to the second show there. Uh, they're from Germany. Uh, from Frankfurt primarily, a lot of them, and they're Jewish, many of them. And they wanted to know if Art was Jewish because the, the fighter that he had recruited to beat the sumo wrestler had some Iron Cross tattoos, and he had kind of saluted the four corners of the ring in a stiff arm salute. Oh, and isn't Art Jewish? How did Art... But they, they didn't know I'm actually sufficient. They, <laughs> they, they thought maybe, they thought maybe that there was some anti-Semitism there. Then they were pleased to find out that that wasn't the case, including Gerard Gordeau's mother is Jewish. And that the four uh, gestures that he had to the, is actually something from Savat. But they came to the second show because they saw the numbers in the first show and they realized this thing isn't a fluke. This thing's going to roll. And it did. And it certainly did. Look, I know we're running up close to time here. Uh, if I can ask you just one more question before we sign Absolutely. off. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you, we've talked a lot about the first one. <clears throat> But uh, you know, are there any? Is there any one particular high point or one story you'd like to tell about some of the subsequent ones? And again, I'm sure there's a lot of this in your book, which I'm going to have to read now because I'm very curious. But uh, you know, is there anything that stands out from some of the later UFCs that you were involved in? Uh, oh, that's that, that's that's another good question, Dave. Certainly, UFC three, which I've described as uh, the most intense one that I was involved in, because you know that was the one where you know Hoist. Uh, ran out of gas. He yeah. didn't come out for the final. Uh, Shamrock didn't come out for the final. So the American Dream Show, UFC 3 in Charlotte, North Carolina, I was in September 94. That one is memorable because at the last minute I had to go out in the parking lot and find Steve Jenner, my alternate, who were already dressed in his civilian clothes and was ready to go back to the hotel. And, and at one point, Joe Son and I got into a shoving match. Uh, an argument in, in, in the parking lot <laughs> when I was looking for Jenner. I mean, that event... At one point, Michael Pilot, the director, was screaming at me, who's fighting? WTF? What's going on? <laughs> right. who's, who's doing the final? Who, who, who's in this thing? I mean, it was chaos. The energy, I, I remember smoking a cigar at the party that night, and I was finally, my blood pressure was now down. I was relaxing a little bit because that event was unbelievable. I also think about UFC 4, where Hoist came back and was able to, hold out against a, a good wrestler that I had recruited. I was very glad I recruited Dan the Beast Severin in. Oh, yeah. And later on, you know, later on I brought many wrestlers in. Dan was my first, and he became a Hall of Famer. But the horse to hold out, and that be, that was almost an 18-minute match. The audience was mystified that this little guy was on the bottom. Is that an offensive position? What is he doing on the bottom? How can he win from there? And he winds up getting Dan in a triangle choke, stunned Dan. You know, that was... I remember being so excited at the end of that show... 
that I, uncharacteristically, I, I was up in the octagon getting ready to present the check and, and the belt, and I grabbed Hoist's hand and kissed it. And I look at it on the tape later, and I thought, what the hell was I doing? And it was just such an emotional moment. I was so thrilled for him, because Hickson wasn't in this corner for that show. He was on his own. And he had come back and faced the the, the agony of, of uh, that withdrawal and the sense of defeat in UFC 3. And he came back to win the UFC for the third time. A great personal triumph for him. Great personal triumph. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, there's there's... So many just wonderful stories attached to this. We don't have time to tell them all, um, but I'm going to refer people to your book to find out more. And before we go, go ahead and tell us, you know, what you're working on now and, and where the listeners should go to find out more about you and the book. Well, Dave, that's another good question. Uh, the name of the book is, Is This Legal? The Inside Story of the First UFC from the Man Who Created It. And it, it, you can find it at ascendbooks.com. BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, AmazonUK.com, etc. Uh, if people want to know more about, if they've read the book and want to know even more, I suggest they go to IsThisLegalTheBook.com, which is a website that I've maintained to support the book. There's a lot of stories and background information and documents and photos that aren't even in the book. The book is about 275 pages long. Uh, there's 16 pages of color photos. I think people will enjoy it. What I'm currently working on is that I have an option. Sean Wheelock and I, who is my writing associate on the book, who's the play-by-play commentator for Bellator, we have an option on the book from a Hollywood production team uh, very associated with the Expendables movies to produce Is This Legal as a theatrical film. Oh, sweet. So we're very excited about that. In fact, I'm preparing some uh, some uh, materials right now that they asked me for to move this project forward. Uh, they're very excited. They feel that uh, that uh, they can recruit a really interesting cast. They they feel that the story that people will see in the book has got a lot of drama in it. You know, you got that drama between Horian and I. Uh, we were different. We had different motivations to do this. The drama between him, Hickson, and the voice. The drama between Bob Myrowitz uh, over at Semaphore and myself, well, like I said, we didn't sign that agreement until 70 minutes before. So I think if there is going to be a film uh, about this, I think people are going to enjoy it. I'm also working with Dan Severin on developing the amateur rules to reflect the differences between amateur and pro. And, uh, and I'm still doing some personal appearances and plenty of interviews. So I urge anybody who really wants to find out more about the history of the event to read the book, Is This Legal? All right. Well, I can't wait to do that very thing myself, and I look forward to seeing what happens with the movie project. And, Art, you are a joy to speak with. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Dave, I appreciate the interview. The questions were excellent, and uh, look forward to hooking up with you again sometime in the future, my friend. Awesome. We will do it. I ain't gonna go I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. Rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. It has long struck me that it can be a useful thought experiment to draw comparisons between the martial arts and the classic game of rock, paper, scissors. Or, if you're a fan of the television series The Big Bang Theory, rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. The first comparison I like 
is that each technique has at least one matching nemesis technique that counteracts or neutralizes it, and at least one matching prey technique that it in turn counteracts or neutralizes. Of course, the comparison is not perfect. In the real world, there are usually many possible counters to any given technique, but in Rock, Paper, Scissors, there's only one. Or in Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock, two. But the comparison is valid in the sense that it's very important to choose a technique that matches well with what the opponent chooses. Another comparison is with different areas of the martial arts. By areas, I mean things like standing striking, or fighting in the clinch, or grappling on the ground. One way, but by no means the only way, of making this comparison might be closing to the clinch can negate long-range striking. Throwing or dragging the opponent to the ground and grappling with him there can negate the opponent's clinch game. And standing up from grappling to strike puts you on two feet, giving you superior mobility to the man still on the ground. Back in 1993, the first UFC kicked off the sport of mixed martial arts and sparked a huge surge in cross-training. Many teachers and practitioners of striking arts continued to insist that grappling skills were unnecessary to succeed at MMA, that if your striking skills were sufficient, the opponent could not get close enough to grapple. Time and experience proved them wrong. The first striking specialists to succeed, like kickboxer Maurice Smith, were those that developed at least adequate defense against takedowns, a wrestling skill, not a kickboxing skill, and adequate survival skills on the ground, a grappling skill, not a kickboxing skill. The reaction I described that striking only proponents had to the early success of grapplers in MMA brings an image to mind of someone who had just lost at rock, paper, scissors when his opponent played paper to his rock. He is then berated by his instructor, who says that he is a disappointment to the style of rock, and that if he had only executed rock correctly, then paper could never have beaten him. Another comparison can be drawn from the diversions of a style into a combat version and a sport version. Most styles begin as self-defense or combat styles. Much of the training involves learning effective responses to various self-defense situations that may occur. The teacher or another student frequently help you practice by being the attacker. Thus, it becomes partly a form of constructive role-playing. Over time, some practitioners become bored or impatient and wish to push their skills to a higher level. A very common outgrowth of this desire is to spar with other practitioners of the art. What is interesting here is that fighting another person trained in the same style is not necessarily what the techniques were originally developed for. As a result, Subsequent generations within the style develop modifications to the techniques and invent completely new techniques as well that allow them to better compete against other skilled martial athletes. This effectively creates a new style. Frequently, rivalry and bad blood between the old combat version and the new sport version crop up. One of the criticisms that adherents of the older combat style make is that the sport practitioners cannot adequately defend themselves. Here's where the comparison to rock-paper-scissors comes in. Hypothetically, the combat style beats the street fighter, the sport style beats the combat style, and the street fighter beats the sport style. I realize this is only hypothetical and more applicable to groups than individuals, 
but I see an elegant symmetry in it. A simpler way to put this is that when it comes to fighting, as the great science fiction writer Robert Heinlein said, specialization is for insects. Anyway, that's what I think, but I could be wrong. Let me know what you think at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Marshall Brain. It's time for the media mop-up. Jackie Chan's Chinese Zodiac 12 is our topic tonight. So, Jackie Chan's Chinese Zodiac 12, henceforth referred to as CZ12, finally popped on Netflix. I hadn't been eager to seek it out because of the kind of across-the-board terrible reviews it got from the American press on its release. They called it dull, muddled, silly, and even sad. Well, after seeing it, I have something to say back to them. Fuck off. That may seem a little harsh, but allow me to elaborate. First point, silly and muddled. Sure. Have you ever seen one of these before? Do you think that the previous Condor movies were famous for razor sharp plotting or subtle highbrow humor? Yeah, my eyes glazed over from time to time during the dialogue heavy Uh, language-mixing plot advancement scenes in this, but uh, wasn't it ever thus? And frankly, the American edits, which is what I and all the critics watched, make that problem worse in my experience. Taking out or toning down the plot elements that appeal to Asian audiences is, by its nature, going to muddy the plot even further. Either track down the full version and learn to appreciate the Eastern plot elements, the distinctive sense of humor, the car crash mixing of humor and melodrama, etc., etc., or accept the fact that your Western-targeted version is going to lose some plot cohesion and just focus on the action. After all, that's what you really came for, right? Watching the little Asian man try to break his neck. Which brings me to my second point. It's sad. Oh, Jackie Chan ain't what he used to be. He used a wire on one of those gags. I think I saw a safety net. Newsflash, assholes. He was effectively 60 freaking years old when he made this. I mean, what? If, If anybody's earned a safety net or a rope to swing from, it's Jackie Chan. There's more agility and creativity in this movie than most Western action stars half his age can muster, and that's after being exposed to the work of people like Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung, Yung Bu, and others for the last three decades. Let's see your fat, critical ass jump feet first through a picture frame, okay? Just once. I dare ya. Oh yeah, Jackie Chan is dull now. No. You're just desensitized. And he's the one that got you there. You should thank him. But instead, I feel like nothing would be a satisfying close to Jackie Chan's career for those people short of his actual death during a stunt. Which tells me, for these critics anyway, that you see Jackie Chan's career as little more than a long NASCAR race where you play the bored, morbid fan who's just sitting there waiting for the car to go into the wall and burst into flames. 
Never mind the stunning skill on the display. Never mind the mind-bending creativity. Never mind the enormous stones and superlative human spirit that it takes to attempt this stuff in the first place. Is he still topping himself? No. Did he die? No. Well, meh. All right. Let me tell you this. We should be standing up and applauding Jackie Chan for even squeezing out one more average Jackie Chan movie. <laughs> you know why? Because when he quits making them, and this could be it, we will never get another one. There will never be another Jackie Chan. And he pioneered a genre of martial arts films that have left our own devices here in the West we might never have had. He has successfully mixed humor, drama, likability, slapstick, and so many other cinematic elements in a way that at least I had never seen before to produce thrills that were head and shoulders above anything big special effects and Hollywood blockbusters had ever given me. Why? How? Because Jackie Chan, through bravery, skill, and charisma, created a hero you could really be worried about. The combination of actual death-defying stunts and a character who oozed vulnerability stands in sharp contrast to the Western martial arts or otherwise movie heroes of the times. Uh, the ruthless, out-for-himself, icy, cool, untouchable, libertarian ubermensch who has an answer for everything, never sleeps alone, and, you know, occasionally carelessly murders and burns people, or jumps chasms on horseback in fringy jackets, blah, 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 Seagal, okay. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave that bit for later. Yeah, I watched uh, On Deadly Ground again this week, too. Topic for another time. Look, let me calm down here a little bit. I think you listeners take my point. Should you watch uh, CZ-12? Yes. And bearing what I've said here in mind, I challenge you to watch this sloppy, silly, admittedly middling Jackie Chan adventure movie and not smile at the creative ways he finds to run, fight, or just to put fucking gum in his mouth. <laughs> and maybe you'll even get a bit of a lump in your throat as you watch the obligatory end of film montage and hear his farewell message. I know I did. If this is your last big action movie, then all I have to say is thank you, Jackie Chan, so much. Because even an average Jackie Chan action movie is still a fucking Jackie Chan action movie. Where have you gone again, my sweet? Everybody wants to know Where have you gone again, my sweet? Everybody wants to know Where you gone? Where you gone? This will bring us to the end of episode 61. I had a great time making it. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Uh, episode 62 should be fantastic. Got a sweet interview lined up. Uh, maybe the news will be back. 
Um, please feel free to let us know what you think about the changes going on or if you have anything to add to the conversation here at Hi-Ya. You can send us an email, mailbag at hiyapodcast.com. You can also friend us on Facebook, like our page. We like it when you like our page. Uh, if you want to help out, the best way to do it is go out there and write us a five-star review on iTunes. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Highoppodcast.com is where you'll find uh, Ryan Lindsay's always magnificent show notes for this episode. We'll let it go for tonight, folks. It's back out to the Champagne Lounge with me. And until episode 62, I will see you is a little squirrely.